This is an ABC podcast. Those are the morose and cheerful sounds, I guess, of the minefield. Welcome to the show. Good to have your company once more, um, or perhaps for the first time, if you're a first-time listener. This is a show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Walid Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. It's in a world that is upside down. Scott's in lockdown and I'm not. <laughs> ben Simmons has declared he's not going to the Olympics to play for the Boomers. Which is, in fact, a wonderful, wonderful bit of news for the Boomers. Oh, that's interesting. That's not yeah, what I expected yeah. to hear you say. I no, knew you'd have no, a no. view on it, which is yep. why I just thought I, I completely forgot about it, really, until we are about to start the show, and I thought, Scott, will yeah. have something to say about this. I'm, I'm, I'm no fan of the guy or his style of play. I do feel bad for him that's because... such a full-on thing to say. Yeah, yeah, because I, I do think the game has gotten in his head, yep. and if there's one sports town where you don't want to get on the wrong side of the fans... It's Philadelphia. I but, mean, even more than Boston, and that's that saying something. But by all so, reports, he won't be playing there again. So shouldn't he? Yep. Shouldn't he go to the Olympics, be surrounded by a team that naively loves him and a country that naively adores him, and no, get his no. confidence well, back? The naively adores him is exactly right. Uh, anyone who naively adores Ben Simmons hasn't been watching his style of play for the last three years. I, I think his style of play is less suited, believe it or not, to international basketball than it is NBA basketball. The problem is, is you've got two inside heavy players competing for the same rarefied paint space on the court. I mean, what they needed is a good old fashioned point guard, not the six foot ten behemoth who has branded himself or has been branded as a as a point guard it just it never worked it was never going to work i mean i actually think just on a quite serious note for ben simmons mental health i think it's a very very good thing for her for him to go elsewhere for him to kind of plant his flag in a new city that really will adore him to get his confidence back and then to do what every other great nba player has done and do the things that need to be done to steadily expand his game to improve those weaknesses and to become the player that so many people hope that he would be so i agree with that on the nba front i just thought for his mental health maybe being the star of the boomers might have been good yeah, Might have been Patty Mills. No, nah, Pat, Patty Mills is always going to be the star of the Boomers. No, nah, but he's not. Because anyway, okay. Hey, you you started the show though mm. by calling the tones of the minefield theme the what is it? Cheerful and morose, morose and cheerful. Well, it's because it's got this sort of brooding minor thing. I haven't yeah. played, I haven't looked at the harmony. This is just by ear. But there's this brooding minor thing, and then it resolves major. Yep. Yeah. Which is, I think, in a lot of ways, quite a nice metaphor for moral philosophy itself. Don't yeah. you think? Well, I mean, it depends the, who's the, doing the, it, I think. Well, it's, it's true. I mean, the moral philosophers that I love most have long described the task of moral philosophy as being the rapid interplay between hope and despair. And if it ever goes far too much one way, then something mm. fundamental is lost because you're always working in between the world as it should be, the world as you want it to be, the world as you believe justice dictates, the world as you believe some kind of conception of the good or the dignity of our fellow human beings dictates or warrants or, or demands, and then the realities of the world as it is. And any attempt, I think, to shortcut that interplay, to make it too quickly the world as you want it to be, that's just a, a recipe for tyrannical violence. And anything that tips too quickly over into pure despair, then I think lends itself over to a council of self-defeating, well, almost nihilism, perhaps nihilism, maybe the wrong kind of nihilism. But I think this, this idea of the bringing, the coming back and forth, the movement back and forth uh, between despair and hope, between moroseness and cheerfulness, I think not only is that a really nice image of the task of moral philosophy properly done, it may well be a beautiful image for the task of justice. Um, yeah. And that brings us remarkably close, I think, to the topic for today. Or have I? No, I think kind of... that that's one of the best segues you've oh, ever you like done, that? and oh, it might wow. be one of the best segues we've had on this show. And I will never, sorry, on any show. And I will, um, I will never hear our theme the same way again, ah, be because nice? it wasn't just that you got from point A to point B, which seemed an unlikely journey. Mm. But you're absolutely right with what you said. Like that that analysis, and I know what we're about to talk about, and we should actually mm. let our listeners in on it at some point soon. But um, I think that analysis is is perhaps a really good way of undergirding 
what we say henceforth. Yeah, yeah. And and look, I, I was really trying not to... Well, I, I suppose I am trying to show our hand. There's a little bit of homework there as well, though, I think about... And you wrote about this in that wonderful, wonderful piece in the monthly that you wrote last year about cancel culture. That, I mean, I, I, I really do think any form of moral and political analysis that lingers too much on one side between hope and despair, that demands maybe too much of one side or that demands that we give ourselves over too much to the other side, uh, really is, is a form of, of moral self-limitation, maybe even imposing a kind of moral debility on ourselves. Look, we're, we're talking about what we've learned a year and a couple months on from the murder of George Floyd. Uh, we did a show at the time with a marvelous philosopher named Paul C. Taylor at Vanderbilt University. Even then, it felt to me, Waleed, that we were moving back and forth between these poles of despair and hope. Paul Taylor himself was really struggling with precisely how to feel about the public response to the murder of George Floyd. And I suppose what we're talking about today is not only the fact that we can, in fact, call what happened to George Floyd on the side of a street in South Minneapolis murder. And that itself, I think, is something remarkable. Um, there is a judicial achievement. There may even be something that we might want to call a moral achievement that took place in our ability to be able to say that that 46-year-old man was murdered. Um, but we're also trying to grapple with what has happened since. It's not just the conviction of former police officer Derek Chauvin, which took place at the end of May, beginning of June this year, nor is it simply uh, the fact that he was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. I should say well, that only Derek just Chauvin... recently, which is why we're doing the show. Last week, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I should also say that one of the other remarkable things was that a jury found former officer Derek Chauvin guilty on all three counts with which he was charged, which again is something kind of remarkable. And I, I, before we bring in our guest, I would love to, for us to discuss a little something about, I mean, the, the moral theater that took place in that courtroom. Um, but what all this means then? I mean, George Floyd was murdered at a very, very particular time in the United States, mere months into the pandemic, which made his dying cry, which he uttered by my count no less than 27 times before his captors, that he couldn't breathe. It made that statement of his incapacity to breathe, his, his inability to breathe, that statement then resonated across all sorts of moral and political and global registers. So it took place in a particular time and it made the protests the forms of solidarity that then poured out onto the streets in the United States and across the world, including Australia, it made those forms of mobilization also really poignant, I think, the fact that this was taking place in the conditions of a pandemic. It also, of course, took place during an election season, during an election campaign, which is now behind us. So I think beginning to take stock with what it is that took place, what we've learned from it, what it might mean to ask whether justice was in fact done by George Floyd. This, I think, brings us into, I think, the next logical question, the, the next territory that we need to begin interrogating. Yeah. So where do you want to start that? Because the, the bit I go to immediately is to, to what extent is the convergence of all those factors, not the least of which, in fact, the most of which is the fact that it was filmed mm. and then became a global image in the sort of language of John Urey and the complexity theorists, it became yeah. a global fluid. This was, well, and at the same time as it kind of became a node, right, an attractor. Everything, all eyes were beset upon it and the images themselves just f circulated all over the globe instantaneously. And without that, um, this is a completely different event. There's every chance That's we're right. not talking about it. I don't know whether it means there wouldn't have been a conviction I'm not sufficiently expert to, I mean, I know what the history of these things has been, but mm. I'm not sufficiently expert to say whether or not there wouldn't, there would or wouldn't have been a conviction in this particular case, in that particular state, with that particular 
uh, Attorney General and so on. Um, but it would have been a very different cultural and political phenomenon, I think we can say. Yeah. And so if we're going to talk about the question of justice and to what extent it's been served, do we first have to reckon with the question of to what extent whatever it is that has been delivered here is a function of happenstance and coincidence, like the accumulation of circumstances? The sheer number than... of things, in other words, that had to line up almost perfectly. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad, by the way, you mentioned the district attorney because I think Keith Ellison's superintendents – his remarkable dexterity and lack of, for want of a better term, self-promotion was a crucial element in the achievement of this conviction. And not just of the conviction of former officer Derek Chauvin, but also the conviction on all counts. Uh, I, I think he was a singular agent in the middle of all this, as well as, of course, those agitators, those people who really did bring this to the fore. But I think... Sorry, which uh, agitators do you mean? Are you talking about the protesters here or are you talking about uh, people within police and government? Uh, I mean, well, one of well, the things I found fascinating yeah. is it was the testimony of police officers that That's probably right. was the most decisive factor within the courtroom context, at least from the That this is not, in fact, common practice, that this is not, in fact, just what we do. Yeah. Now, what what I suppose is unknowable, although people who are more expert may know it, but what, what I suppose is unknowable is to what extent that was a function of all of the atmospherics and all of the politics and all of the protest and, and even of the fact that you had a country in lockdown watching these images. Like, that I don't. I can't figure out. It's sort of easy to identify, I think, or easy enough to identify the elements that came together to make this possible. What's harder is to make the but-for case, to identify the causation, to say that were this element absent or that element absent, this wouldn't have happened. And yet it seems to me that those unknowables, I was going to say imponderables, but they're actually infinitely ponderable, I suppose. Those unknowables are perhaps the most decisive in determining whether or not what we've witnessed here is the delivery of justice in a way that's meaningful and sustainable or not. Yeah. Can I just turn this around though, Willie? Because I, I, I agree with you completely that the video that was captured, the footage that was captured by Darnella Fraser that so many people saw. I also know just as many people who couldn't watch it. Um, which I know is partly a great the many, point, right? Which is precisely the point. Um, but for that, did you ever see, I, I, I found this fascinating. So this is the way the Minneapolis Police Department, in their press release on the 25th of May last year, this is how they described what happened. Man dies after medical incident during police interaction. Which itself is, well... I found it chilling, and without that footage, that's probably all that it would have uh, been left with. That's Wait, what it probably would have Sorry to inter- interrupt here. Can I just ask you, what would you want that to say? Um, it's the very sterility of the language, not just in the title of the press release, but also in what happens, that suggests the kind of procedural language that most often fills police press releases as a way of routinizing certain forms of police work. So, so I get that criticism and I think that's, that's clear enough. But can we be specific? Is it, is it the idea of police interaction that's the problem? <laughs> interaction with police. Because there are, at the same time as you are right, there are limitations on what of could course. be said. So, for of example, course. they couldn't say police officer murders man because murder is a legal category and that's not established until there's a conviction. They could perhaps say kills, but I don't know. Was there is in the immediate aftermath? Is there a doubt about the causation that they like? I don't know. How far can they go in that language yeah, while observing look, the sort of, if you like, epistemological limits that might seem absurd through a journalistic lens or an activist lens, but. In a, no, you're legal right. Lens are, are different, right? You're right, and and look, I don't think we can expect of the police. Uh, more than what the police in such circumstances can, in fact, deliver. I guess my, my point, however, is this. What Darnella Fraser's footage did is it turned those who were willing to watch into something like eyewitnesses. Yeah. So that was, that was the first effect. Uh, which made the um, world eyewitnesses. Which made the world eyewitnesses. And it made the trauma 
that ought to attend the knowledge that a man was suffocating while pleading for his life in a state of mortal distress and for those pleas not to be heeded by the police officer who had his knee on the man's neck nor the three police officers who were standing nearby. It simply made real the trauma that ought to attend that knowledge. But then, Walid, I think, and I I tried deliberately to refer to the theater of what took place in court. Because for me, one of the most affecting, one of the most morally important aspects of the trial of Derek Chauvin was hearing from the eyewitnesses who were in fact there present. So not just Darnella Fraser herself, who uh, expressed a powerful and I think a fully morally formed sense of guilt over her own sense of hopelessness that all she could do was not ogle nor spectate. All she could do was to try to capture this, but that she was powerless to do anything else. And then hearing the cries of uh, 61-year-old Charles McWilliams, who spoke with George Floyd, who tried to tell him, once they have you in cuffs, there's nothing more that you can do, who himself tried to reason with the officers, to the paramedics, uh, to an off-duty fire person, who tried to, again, reason with the police officers, all of them bound together in solidarity over their condition of common, of common helplessness and hopelessness, having to witness what is, I think, properly described as the torture and the murder of a man in broad daylight in a public space. And hearing then the trauma of these fully formed moral agents who responded in the way that human beings should respond to the words of another human being in a condition of mortal distress— That spectacle of the trauma experienced by these witnesses and then the clear emotion that that each of them displayed when describing what it is that they saw, that then I think had the effect of rendering Derek Chauvin's own explanations of police procedure, why he felt that he had to do what he did, why he was distracted, say, by the agitation that was taking place all around him, that this is what's done when a person is blah, blah, blah. All of these things that, that, would, that in other circumstances might have been um, uh, put forward as a kind of alibi or some kind of justification for why special measures were taken, none of those things could, could hold water. Mm. The because emperor what had no had, clothes all of a sudden. The emperor had no clothes because, yeah. first of all, we were placed in the position of eyewitnesses. Then we were placed in the position of seeing the trauma, the residual trauma of those who were actual physical eyewitnesses. And then that left this police officer in a condition of the only term I can, I can describe, and I think I described it this way last year, is that Derek Chauvin was in a position of soul blindness. He could not see what was available for any human being in, in his position to see. And I think what that ended up doing, Waleed, is that this, conscience, this concentric circle of bearing witness and the reinforcement of there was not a response that was available to the eyewitnesses there that was not available to, to other people who would have been able to witness it. Um, mm-hmm. The fact of the kind of moral commonality of the theater of torture to which people were subjected by watching the murder of George Floyd. I think there was something about that that then brought everybody in, in a condition of mutual solidarity, in a kind of common desire for justice to in fact be done and for the full humanity, not the sainthood of this man, but simply the full humanity of this man who called out in a condition of mortal distress. It pleaded, it begged for that to be given its full regard. And it meant that any justification, any alibi simply couldn't hold up vocationally, professionally, legally, and then ultimately like not morally. So, so what's the import of what you're saying here? Is it that justice can only be served where that picture is fully coloured in? And since that is very rare, because not every police interaction, I think they called it, is filmed. Mm and distributed in this way, then this is not the attainment of justice. This is just a moment. Is that no. Is that what you're saying? No, here? no. I think the import is this. The event, the footage, the trial, the verdict turned George Floyd not into a saint, not into an object of veneration. And I think those who are criticizing 
the veneration of George Floyd are, are missing the point completely, including those who horribly defaced his statue or his bust in Brooklyn. What it turned him into is a representative figure. It turned him into what Stanley Cavell calls a parable of our, of our common humanity. In other words, it allowed us to see what any eyes could see, what anybody with any moral sense should be able to see, and it then washed away our willingness to fall back on those forms of justification that in the past have excused what ultimately ought to be called acts of murder or forms of dehumanization. That's only true if those justifications don't work in future. Otherwise, he represents nothing more than himself and that moment, right? Yes, that's right. And, And that's why for justice here to be done, George Floyd's status as a representative figure, not as a saint nor as an object of veneration, but simply as a full human being, someone who is human simply in their commonness, for that to be given its full judicial and moral weight, something like that recognition needs then to be enshrined in law, uh, which is what's before the U.S. Congress at the moment. So I think what happened with Derek Chauvin's conviction, I don't think that should be minimized. I don't think that should be reduced to a yes, but. I don't think that should be a well about time too. There really is something I think morally significant about what, what took place. But for the next step of justice to happen, something like the conditions that made this murder possible then need to be addressed. The other symbol in this is Chauvin, which we haven't spoken yes, about. Yes, that's true. Um, this is The Minefield. You can listen to the show on RN, which you might be doing right now, but it exists as a podcast, so you can catch the show anytime you like on the ABC Listen app, or you can also follow The Minefield on your podcast platform of choice. We have a guest. We, we do have a guest, and this is a, a rare and wonderful pleasure. Charles McKinney Jr. is the Neville Frierson Bryan Chair of Africana Studies and the Associate Professor of History at Rhodes College in Memphis, Tennessee. Charles, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. Thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm just sitting here listening to you two. Um, please, please proceed. <laughs> all right, then, Charles, don't thank mind, you very much don't for mind your me. Time. Don't mind me. Don't mind me. Just, you, you all just keep talking. This is great. <laughs> I should also acknowledge that our mutual friend, Paul Taylor, uh, was the one who put us in touch. Uh, and so um, uh, the, the fact that he commended you so highly and your generosity during, during a Memphis summer to join us uh, really does mean something. Look, Charles, I, I said a few fairly categorical things uh, about how uh, Chauvin's conviction and sentencing should and should not be taken. Um, uh, obviously, I mean, I grew up in the U.S. I no longer live there. Um, I have dear friends who feel themselves deeply, deeply morally conflicted about the outcome of the trial and about the fair degree of self-congratulation and back patting in some circles that has followed it. Let me just get you to say something about where, where you think the next stage of our conversation, both on this show and the broader conversation of justice, where do you think it needs to go next? So let me start with a preface. Um, and the preface is is this. I, I have three children. Uh, my oldest is my daughter, and I've got two boys. And um, the middle boy is 20 years old. And so for the last nine years, um, we have had a conversation after um, either private citizens or police officers have murdered um, either an armed or an unarmed black person. So in the summer of 2020, um, in the wake of George Floyd, I'm taking a walk with my middle child. His name is Io, and uh, he's recounting all of the other walks and conversations that we've had. And he starts off by saying, "Well, I remember when I was 12, when Trayvon Martin got killed." Mm. And then he goes on to say, "I remember when we had this conversation when Eric Garner and Mike Brown were killed in 2014." And then he goes on to say, "I remember this conversation as well with Tamir Rice." who was younger than I am, was two years younger than I am when he was murdered in uh, 2014. I remember we had this conversation with Walter Scott when he was shot in the back in South Carolina in 2015. And here we are again, Dad, in uh, 2020 with George Floyd. So while you two were talking, um, I'm just knocking around all of the all of the walks and conversations that I've had with my my middle boy about 
um, about cops killing unarmed black people. And in the vast majority of those instances, um, literally nothing happening, right? Um, we saw Eric Garner get choked to death in 2014. We saw Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy playing with a toy gun in a park, get shot 1.7 seconds after the cops arrived. We saw nobody go to jail for that. Uh, we saw nobody go to jail for Trayvon Martin. Uh, nobody go to jail for Freddie Gray. Nobody go to jail for Sandra Bland, so on and so forth. So we arrive at George Floyd. And uh, I'm really thinking about the part of your conversation um, before, uh, before you all let me in um, about the confluence of factors that have to be in place in order for George Floyd's killer to in fact be convicted, right? It's gotta be, it's gotta be a, perfect, a perfect storm, right? We have to have um, rock solid witnesses. We have to have, apparently, we have to have video footage. And it's very important for us to understand that video footage in and of itself is not enough. Hmm. Um, for those of you, for those of your listeners who were, you know, who are older than 21, um, if you were alive in 1992, that's we right. saw a half dozen police officers beating Rodney King mercilessly for the better part of 20 minutes. Um, and the jury said uh, not guilty. Right. Um, which led to the urban rebellion in Los Angeles in 1992. So so it's not just that we need more than footage because footage is not enough. Um, we need more than um, to the of procedure. This is powerful, this is impactful, this is crucial, but that's not enough. That's not gonna do this by itself, right? We need, um, we, need a, we need a DA, we need an attorney general who knows how to thread a needle in a very specific and particular way. Um, if this case had happened in my home state of Tennessee, Chauvin would not be in prison, right? You know, our DA um, is dedicated to um, you know, a, a, a segregationist mindset. And uh, at no point in time would the district attorney uh, here in Memphis even entertain, I don't think she would even entertain trying to uh, convict uh, one of the police officers here in, in Memphis, Tennessee. So that's the part of the conversation that I'm really, that I'm really still grappling with, right? You know, this confluence, this massive confluence, right? Then you throw in COVID, then you throw in almost a decade worth of of political mobilization and organizing, Black Lives Matter, BYP, um, just all manner of organizations, both national and local, that are in the streets, that are on our evening news, that are um, filling up our Twitter feeds and our Facebook pages, that are stopping traffic, that are engaged in all manner of activities to push once again, to push this issue into the forefront of our national consciousness. Right. You have to have all of these things. It's like a game of Jenga. Right? You have to have all of these pieces very delicately, you know, very delicately placed. Right. And one of these pieces gets taken out. The whole structure, the whole structure falls away. Right. Um, can I just can I can I just ask you, though, Charles, that one of the other factors here, of course, is the fact that this is taking place during an election year. And it's not just that it takes place under the watch of a um, uh, for many a noxious presidency, but there's the added risk that if matters are pressed too far, if the agitation is seen to be too much, too polarizing, if the agitation runs the risk of alienating those who are desperately needed as allies in a common struggle, that that's also one of the pieces that if jiggled too much, if taken out prematurely could cause the entire thing to fall. I mean, do, do you see that as one of the conditions of possibility of this conviction? Or do you think that was simply one of the threats to meaningful change going, going ahead? No, I think that's, I think that's one of the conditions. Um, I'm a civil rights scholar. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm focused on, I'm a student of the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, early 70s, right? So the threat, the threat of continued protests, the threat of an, ex, an, an escalation of protests teetering into, um, veering into uh, to, to violent inter insurrection, right? When you look back at the record of the 1950s and 60s, folks are terrified of the civil rights movement, 
right? I mean, this is even before black power comes along, right? You know, people are legit scared about protests breaking out in their neck of the woods, in their city, in their town, in their state. Um, they're concerned about these increasingly violent interactions. So this is very much in the, in, you know, in, on the minds of all manner of folks, you know, allies in particular, you know, folks on the, folks on the left and the Democratic Party and, and folks who are legitimately concerned about these issues, regardless of their political affiliation, right, regardless of their political stripes. This is a, this is a legitimate concern. If we cannot convict a man who placed his knee on the neck of another human being for nine and a half minutes with his hand in his pocket, kneeling casually while the life ebbs out of George Floyd, if we can't convict this guy, well then, we're in trouble. We're in serious, we're in serious trouble, right? Um, and we saw glimpses of this, right, in in previous in, in previous moments, right? You know, with Mike Brown in 2014, that gets really contentious in Ferguson, Missouri, and in other places across the country. So when you throw in COVID, when you throw in um, when you throw in the you know white separatist white nationalist presidency of Donald Trump, which is supercharging and amplifying. Uh, racial animus in 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 the in the country and 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 abroad. When you throw the when you throw those factors in, um, when you throw in the you know I don't know what it looks like if uh, if that jury comes back and says not guilty. And I also have to add, right? You know, on the way leading up to the verdict, I, I couldn't find the it was a it was a six to four split um, in terms of hey, do you th you think y'all think this guy's getting convicted? Right. You know, I took a, I took an informal poll. I asked, a, you know, a bunch of bunch of my friends and stuff. And it was 60, 40. No, I don't think it's going to happen. Sorry, can I just ask right? about that poll? Were these friends of yours, did they want to see George Floyd convicted? So in other words, was this pessimism or was this just their view of the facts? It was pessimism. Right. Oh, it was just pure, pure pessimism. Right. right. Um, you know, um, you know, what 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 basis, what what evidence? Right. What evidentiary base do you have to believe that, that Chauvin's going to be convicted? Well, I suppose right? I suppose know, in the end, the evidentiary base was that there'd never been a case quite like it because of the convergence of factors that that we'd spoken about. So this was a this was like a different game that we were playing and and history didn't. Well, well, and it turned out not to be predictive, but I, I feel like I want to play a bit more with these variables because you've made the argument and I've posed the question, did all of these factors need to converge? What if we removed some of them? So I, I, I don't know, pick a variable. What if, what if it wasn't Keith Ellison there, for example, or, but you still had police officers that were prepared to come out and you still had videos? Or what if you had the video and you had Keith Ellison but you didn't have the officers? Or I, I think, Waleed, more, more crucially, what if you had the eyewitnesses but you didn't have the video? I th yeah, I, yeah. I just think you very quickly get to a, there wouldn't be a conviction there at that point. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remove the variables that, that may not have tilted it and just see how, what the tolerance is here. Like at what point does it, does it tip? Or Charles, are you saying it tips immediately? It doesn't matter which variable you remove. Yeah, um, you know, uh, you know, this is you're absolutely right, um, Waleed. This this is a very different, this is a very different case than than previous cases, but we've had some very compelling previous cases. You know, Tamir Rice is a 12 year old boy playing in a park, right? And the and the worst we can get, you know, and the and the best we can get is to get this, to get the cop who shoots him uh, fired. And, and he doesn't get fired for killing Tamir Rice. He gets fired on a technicality for screwing up something on his application for his job application, right? So, so he doesn't get he, he doesn't get fired for for killing a twelve year old playing in a park. So there's two things here, right? One is the, the the casual nature with which black life can be exterminated in the United States. That's that's the foundational element of, of, of this whole, of this whole thing, right? You know, the reason we have to have a conversation about confluence of factors is because it literally takes a confluence of factors for justice to actually be done, 
right? It takes that confluence. And when we don't have that confluence, even when we have the things that we say should result in slam dunks, i.e. video, even when we have the video, Walter Scott is running away from the cop, from Slager, when Slager shoots him in the back three times. And the first time they went to trial was a mistrial because the jury just couldn't wrap their, their minds around the possibility that maybe, just maybe, I don't know, maybe he was still in fear, fearing for his life while this man was slowly running away from him. They couldn't quite get there. They couldn't get there, despite the video evidence. The other thing that I think is really important for us to, to remember here, right, is that this is just one piece of this larger, of this larger system. When Black Lives Matter activists and other folks who are thinking through and are thinking really critically about criminal justice and about about police reform, right, they're thinking about the totality of a system. So it's not just the interactions that can often have lethal consequences, right? We're talking about we're talking about a system that includes arrests, that includes stops, that includes convictions and sentencing that includes bail. Our, our, our jails here in Memphis, our, our jails are packed full of people who have a bail, who have a bail set at $100 who, and who can't afford it. So we're, we're talking about a totality of a system. So, so when we talk about, so when we think through and think about issues of justice, I think it's really important for us to remember the, the constellation of dynamics Right, the constellation of realities that people are trying to contend with when it comes to reforming, uh, reforming policing in the country, which is again why I think you can be happy about the fact that Chauvin got convicted, right? You know, yay! I mean, you know, it's, it's great justice is justice is served, but again, that justice. Right. This one piece. Right. This is a star in an infinite universe. Right. In terms of justice and the way I've been talking about this with my students. Right. Um, I, I'm very happy that Frederick Douglass escaped from slavery. He got justice for himself. Right. He freed himself. But we don't then say that, you know what, justice is served and we don't need to attend to this larger system. No. In order for justice to be served, we have to transform the system. If we believe that people should be free, then we have to shift and change the systems and structures that lead to the enslavement of people. So if we want policing to change, we have to be cognizant of, this to of the totality of this system. And we can be happy that Chauvin gets convicted, and we can be happy that on the second bite at the apple, Slager, the guy who shoots Walter Scott, is, is convicted. We can be happy about these particular instances. Right. But again, we got to keep our eye on the sparrow when it comes to the totality of this system and the way that this system in total is impacting people in a really deleterious way. You're listening to The Minefield. Uh, my name is Willie Daly. Scott Stevens is my co-host. The voice you just heard there belongs to Charles McKinney, who's the Neville Farris and Bryan Chair of Africana Studies and Associate Professor of History at Rhodes College, uh, I guess, on this week's edition of The Minefield. Um, Scott, I've got a million things to say. I'm sure you do too. Do you want to yeah. go? <laughs> well, look, I, I was just going to ask, you know, we've, we've talked about the conditions of possibility of Derek Chauvin's conviction. And I think it's important that we did that. A very particular series of things needed to align for this to happen. But I guess something else that I've been thinking a lot about, um, I, I've always been fascinated by the rhetoric and the dynamics coming out of the Brown v. Board of Education Supreme Court decision. It was morally, democratically, politically critical that Brown v. Board of Education be decided unanimously. Had there been dissent, then the transformative effect, the possibility of that legislation being transformative, it was crucial for, for undoing, well, if, if you like, one dimension of the segregation of schools in the United States. Um, a whole lot followed, but, you know, it was morally crucial nonetheless. But had there been dissent within the Supreme Court, 
then the moral weight, I think, of the decision would have been severely compromised. It seems to me in this particular instance, uh, the fact that Chauvin was convicted on all three counts, the fact that he's been sentenced the way that he has, but also, if you like, the pedagogical process that led us up to this point, from the world being able to witness the event through seeing this event through the eyes of the eyewitnesses who testified in the trial. I guess my question is, we've been talking about the conditions of possibility of Chauvin's conviction. Does this stand a chance of constituting the conditions of possibility of something like moral transformation in the way we come to view such events in the future. I guess what, what I'm asking is, you know, when I referred before to George Floyd being a representative figure, and Waleed rightly pointed out that, well, among some people, Derek Chauvin is also now functioning as, if you like, a martyr, a kind of representative figure of his own. Does seeing this figure as, again, not a saint, but simply as a full human being, and then being led through the process through which we've been led, does this stand a chance of providing the conditions of possibility for some rethinking of what it is that we mean when we talk about justice for those who have been denied justice for the better part of 400 years? I don't know. <laughs> no? <laughs> I mean, in terms of, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't you say that there's been something at least potentially morally transformative about this particular process? I think moral transformation is a process, right? You know, and I yeah. think processes unfurl over time. Back to your example of Brown, that's a process that unfolds over time, uh, as we all as we all know, right? You know, Thurgood Marshall after that case, someone asks him, "How long do you think it's going to take to desegregate the schools in the American <laughs> South?" And he says, "Oh, well, you know, fifteen years. Oh, you know, fifteen years, and we'll we'll be done." You know, he says with his own mouth out loud, right? You know, by 1970, this should be this should be done. That's not quite how that happened, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. So, right. you know, it's a process, right? The folks, and like you said earlier, right? You know, coming out of this case, uh, George Floyd is a is a martyr. Coming out of this case, Chauvin's a martyr, and so you've got these two parallel tracks, and those tracks are going to are going to ensure that this is going to be a process that's going to take place over an extended period of time, there's gonna have to be some other things, other things have to happen in order for this moral transformation and this moral trajectory to move in the way that we want it to move, right? Martin King understands this, mm. right? He talks about the long and bitter, but beautiful struggle to build a new world, right? I've been doing a lot of read, I've been contending with his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? And he's got a chapter in there about the white backlash this is where we are right now. Again, and this is what King is saying is that, you know what, we're going to, you know, there's going to be a massive backlash. It's going to be, you know, our friends who were pushing federal legislation in the early 1960s are going to turn their backs on us now because we're asking, we're asking for money, right? We're asking for resources. We don't want to thank you for coming out to March. We really appreciate that. Now it's time for the federal government to expend billions of dollars um, in housing and in education and, uh, and employment and all these other uh, all these other areas, all these other sectors. The easy part is over. There's a reason why yeah. we really love the March on Washington. We love this interracial moment of possibility. We love the fact that 250,000 people, yellow, red, and black and white, came to Washington, D.C., August 28, 1963. We really love that moment of possibility. So much so that we tend to ignore the fact that it's going to be another year before we get the Civil Rights Act passed, right? It's going to be another two years before we get the Voting Rights Act passed. Those things don't get passed because we had a march. The march was a signpost of the possibility of moral, of, of moral and political transformation. It was a signpost, right? So the question for me is whether or not the Chauvin trial is a signpost of a potential trajectory that we can take. Right. And I'm always reluctant to to nail down very particular and specific instances. Right. Emmett Till is way more complicated than than an open casket in 1955. Brown v. Board is way more complicated than this unanimous the decision. Unanimous. Yes, that has to be unanimous. Earl Warren understands that the court ultimately understands that this cannot be a six to three, five to four. It can't even be eight to one. 
right? right? There can be no dissent in this case. We have to stand united as we say this. And even after they stand united, it's going to take another 20 years to get schools integrated. And so what does Brown represent in that case, right? So again, what does Chauvin actually show us? What does it show us? It lays bare, I think. It lays bare the terrain for debate and contention. It lays bare the battlefield, right? Again, the lines have been drawn in terms of people who are invested in equality and justice, folks who I would say on the, are on the right side of history. Okay, look, now what needs to happen is this federal legislation that we want to get passed that needs to get passed. The other thing that needs to happen is we need to start looking at some of these other, we need to start really digging in in some of these other areas. These are other areas that I was talking about earlier, like bail and stops and arrests and all, and all of these other things, right? There's a, there's a whole host of things that need to happen now. Does this moment give us the cover for these things to happen? And if so, what does that cover look like? And so that's kind of how I'm thinking about this, mm. about, about this moment. This moment is, it's maybe, you know, maybe. I go back to my initial, eh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right? See what happens. I think that's the best response we've had on the show, though, before. Yeah, Scott. absolutely. And I think the ratio of question length to answer length, that's the highest yeah, ratio of that. That was kind of perfect as well, wasn't it? It yes. was amazing. Charles, does it matter then how broad the systemic analysis becomes and just how big the demands become. So I feel like you saw you saw the, the signs of this in the Black Lives Matter protests with the defund the police slogan and the fact that that meant such different things to different people mm. and it very quickly became something that, I mean, the politicians who were, even, that were sympathetic to Black Lives Matter would distance themselves from that. In other words, it, it muddied waters in a way that would have lost allies I think is yeah. perhaps the safest way to put it, right? And I, I, I wonder then what you think. How big a part of the equation is the breadth, the scope the, of the demands that are issued now? I think that looms large, right? So a couple of things. This first thing about allies. Back to that aforementioned March on Washington. After the March on Washington happens, um, Gallup interviews um, a bunch of white Americans and asked them what should happen now. And the vast majority of the folks who were interviewed, 65, 68%, they're like, look, you know what? The Negroes have really eloquently and articulately stated their case. The protest should stop. Okay, we, we get it. We understand. Everyone should just go home now, <laughs> right? This is 1963. We should just go home now. Uh, that's not what's going to happen. Right. And again, this is the other argument that's being made in the 19 in the 1950s and the 1960s. Hey, 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 you know, slow down, activists. You know, you're making it really hard for your allies over here in Congress or your allies over here in the state house. And and activists were like, well, you know, you had 100 years to fix this. And so the slowdown and maybe, you know, maybe use some nicer words or maybe not engage in these sorts of protests in these particular sorts of ways. This is an age old argument. Right. This is not a new argument. And so one of the things I'm always I'm, I'm constantly reminding my students of, right, is particularly my students who you know, are in love with the 60s. Right. And, and feel an affinity with, you know, with the activists, with the folks who are out in the streets. We're coming up on the 50th anniversary of the Freedom Rides, uh, 60th anniversary of the Freedom Rides. And I'm like, look, you love the Freedom Riders. But if you think that but if you're if you're the guy right now who's saying, hey, you know, you BLM activists need to go home then you would be that guy 60 years ago. Hey, you freedom writers, you need to go home, <laughs> right? Hey, sit-in activists, you need to go home. So again, we've got to be really careful about and, and be really clear about, for activists, not really all that pressed about whether or not we make centrist Democrats uncomfortable. Centrist Democrats are always going to be uncomfortable. No, right? that, that, that's that's, what that's fine, do, but, but there's, right? it surely cannot be that absolutely any demand is wise and reasonable. As a principle, you can't. That can't be true. There has to be a line somewhere. I'm just interested I mean, you know, in how the, you the, would the, discover sure, it. Sure, the, the lines. I mean, you know, this is a messy process, and people are coming up with all manner of ideas. And so, yeah, there's a crucible of ideas, right? And some of the ideas are that are being floated. You know, a whole bunch of folks are like, "Well, I don't know." Other folks are like, "Well, I don't know." But you know, this comedian, I think it was Michael. I think it was Michael Che a little while ago. He was like, you know. A critical mass of white folks in this country were really uncomfortable with the slogan Black Lives Matter. That made people profoundly, that made white people all across the country profoundly uncomfortable. 
I mean, I, I'm sitting in, the, I, I go to this interracial church and I'm explaining to white people why they should not feel uncomfortable about this. Why do I have to explain that? Me saying that my life matters was making people uncomfortable, right? Let alone to fund the police. I mean, there's almost, I mean, you know, so in my experience, there's almost nothing a critical mass of black people can say that uh, some critical mass of white folks aren't going to find uncomfortable. Mm. Let me say this real quick. Mm. Lena Horne recorded this song called Freedom Now in 1963, and they couldn't find any radio stations to play it because freedom now was a really controversial phrase that made people uncomfortable. She didn't say, go shoot up some white people, right? She didn't say, go burn down some houses. The name of the song was Freedom Now. And that was a really uncomfortable phrase for a critical mass of people. So defunding the police, for instance, defund the police, as we, as you all said earlier, that means a whole bunch of things to a whole bunch of people. And there's some language there that the opponents of, of any and all of this stuff can grapple onto. But that's always going to be the case. That's always going to be the case. And so, again, what exactly is supposed to happen here when it comes to the responses and reactions of people who are, again, sort of grappling with what does it mean to exert freedom? What does it mean to build a movement in this moment that encompasses all of the aspirations and hopes that we are trying to attain in this particular area? Scott, I'm about to wrap. Is there any last word you want to say? Oh, look, I was just going to point out one of the things that both Martin Luther King and James Baldwin were especially attuned to throughout the 1960s was the detrimental effect of a people having lived with contempt, being viewed by white people with contempt for so long, then indulging in or engaging in contempt themselves because it turns contempt into a kind of political currency that can be freely handed around. And, And I guess for me, one of my concerns about this moment is that the fundamental democratic commitments to prudence, to to not 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 proceduralism uh, or even gradualism, but bringing one's allies along with them, and as much as possible, not doing it with disdain or condescension. That it seems to me becomes one of the arch democratic values at this at this time, and the demand for justice. I mean that that mustn't be sacrificed, but at the same time. Doing so, if you like, demanding justice without contempt, that becomes, it seems to me, one of the most important ways of nurturing the proper democratic air, uh, uh, especially in the years ahead. But you had to say that to close because, I, I mean, now we've got to invite Charles back to respond to that. I don't think there's any way we can just let that lay, lie there. Charles? I could just say really, really quickly, you know, Martin King tells us about this in 1963 letter to a Birmingham jail. Mm. Right. He, lay, he lays it out for us. He lays it out for us right there. And he lays out the biggest stumbling block is not the Klansman. The biggest stumbling block is the white moderate yeah. who agrees with your aims and goals, but disagrees with your tactics. That's your biggest obstacle. It's not the Klansman. It's the guy who's sitting in the meeting with you who says he believes in your cause, who believes in your goal. Oh, there's so many implications for that. We, yeah, alas, we can't explore them. <laughs> Charles, we are out of time, sadly. Thank you so much for joining us on The Mindfield. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciated it. Charles McKinney, Jr., the Neville Fryson Bryan Chair of Africana Studies and Associate Professor of History at Rhodes College. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're now at an end. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.